ETHA had actually two wonderful programs. One of them was a seminar series about venture capital, where they brought the best venture capitalists and the best entrepreneurs to lecture. And what I really found appealing with ETHA is the combination of theory and, and practice as well. And, and I think if you don't really integrate the practical aspect, it's difficult just to learn a profession or learn a, learn a subject. In this episode, I'm talking to ETH alumnus, CEO and co-founder of Portal Instruments, Patrick Onkadel, who dials in from Brookline, Massachusetts, which is just next to where I am, which is in Newton, Massachusetts. I'm Susan Kish, host of the We Are ETH podcast, telling the story of the alumni and friends of the ETH Zurich, the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology in Zurich. ETH regularly ranks amongst the top universities in the world with cutting-edge research, science, and people. The people who were there, the people who are there, and the people who will be there. These are their stories. Patrick, welcome. Thank you, Susan, and, and it's great uh, to know that we're neighbors, actually. So I live in Brookline, which is the other uh, suburb, I guess, uh, next to Newton. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And delighted to have you as a guest today. So Patrick, if I understand, you grew up in Paris within sight of the Eiffel Tower, and somehow you decided to go to the ETH, which must have been considered quite unpatriotic at the time. The Eiffel Tower story is true and uh, it's amazing. From our kitchen window, we had uh, we could see actually a sliver of the uh, the Eiffel Tower. It always got our foreign guests actually uh, amazed. You'd wash the dishes <laughs> and you'd see the Eiffel Tower. I mean, this is stuff of uh, of legend, I guess. My my mom actually is German uh, from Dusseldorf, and so I always had a much broader um, sort of horizon than just France. Huh? And in fact, you know, uh, throughout my studies, I, I not only went to ETH in Switzerland, uh, I also went to University of Tokyo uh, in Japan. And then now uh, I'm, I'm in the US and I became a US citizen. So I, th I think I already had that as a nucleus. And then when I was looking for universities, um, I, I was very keen to look beyond France. I actually didn't like this notion that learning was all theoretical. I mean, I think in France, we're very good at training uh, mathematicians, physicists, but the practicality and, and I guess engineers as well, but all the learning is actually done via theory, not with practice. And what I really found appealing uh, with ETH um, is the combination of uh, theory and, and practice as well. And, and I thought, you know, everything's an apprenticeship at the end of the day. And, and I think if you don't really integrate the practical aspect, it's difficult just to learn a profession or learn a, learn a subject. So that was kind of the gist of it. And then actually I came to, to visit ETH and then it was love at first sight. It was like, no doubt, this is where I belonged. I mean, <laughs> come on, this is, this is such a beautiful setting. I think what really impressed me is how the Swiss people really have invested a tremendous amount of, of capital um, and, and resources into those university. And I think universities as a whole, I mean, not just ETH, and you just knew right from the start that this was a place where stuff happens, where you could actually learn a tremendous amount. Uh, and also the environment, I mean, it's, it's Zurich, it's great. I mean, it's a small city, relatively speaking, compared to Paris. So it has all the, almost like the crucible of, of things that you'd want uh, as, a, as a student. So there's a wonderful quote from you about entering the Hauptgebäude, the main building, and say it was like a cathedral. Oh, yeah. 
hundred percent. I mean, it's a catheter of of dedicated to furthering the knowledge of humankind, right? Training the next generation and so on. Yeah, I guess I actually get, believe it or not, I actually get goosebumps uh, thinking about it. It's it's it really has this this um, this feeling. I mean, it's actually even designed. It's got you know the arcades and and so on. So the arches, sorry, uh, and that and so cupola. Yep. That's right. Yeah, in the, in the cupola, middle. Yeah. Very very cool. And so when you were at the ETH, you studied mechanical engineering? Correct. Did I understand that correctly? Yes, that's right. Yep. And then you decided to go overseas? Or what caused you to actually move to, to the U.S. and go to MIT? I, I was very fortunate in that ETH had a very close connection with, with multiple universities, including University of Tokyo, which, as you know, is the, the top university in, in Japan. And during my time in Tokyo, I really kind of grew into loving research and again this this idea of building and being in charge of an idea a vision and then executing on it when i finished my master thesis i really was faced with okay well what's next it would have been sort of a logical step to stay actually in in, in zurich i also saw well gee i, I want to continue to kind of expand the horizon and mit was kind of a, the, kind of the next thing to do mit and eth are really sister schools their founding is only a couple of years apart um, MIT's motto, you could say, is the same as ETH. It's men's and manners, you know, uh, heads and, and, and hands. Heads and hands. That's a great expression. Uh, heads and hands, exactly. Mm -hmm. And so that appealed to me. And I think also, ironically, I wouldn't have been able to actually do MIT without ETH. So all of it actually made a lot of sense. And, and of course, when I came to the U.S., I thought uh, I love the entrepreneurial environment. And I thought it was a very logical next step for me, uh, for me too. So Patrick, growing up in Paris... And as you said, given the predilection of many of the large French academic institutions towards the theoretical end versus the practical end, why were you excited about being an entrepreneur? I mean, did you know any entrepreneurs? Was this something you thought you would want to be when you were a little kid? Yes. So I, I was always fascinated by... Um, again, around this notion of building, right? by people who had actually built companies and kind of grew them to become products that we use. Um, when I was at ETH, uh, I came across a, um, I think this was a Forbes article about Nike, the founder uh, of Nike. And I thought, gee, I mean, this is unbelievable. How is this even possible that someone, so that, that one, individual, one individual or one team could actually start that? And so I was very fascinated by that. Mm -hmm. I did not know that it could be me. And I think what's interesting, when I came to MIT, it was right at the height of the dot-com bubble. I started in January of 1999. Oh, that's that's really the height. It, it, was, it was like the height. I mean, <laughs> there was this company called Akamai. I don't think the general public really knows about them. Yeah, yeah. But they were like the, the poster child, you know, of, of what was possible. You know, three students and an MIT professor basically started it. Uh, I think the, on the date when on a on a public, I think the stock shot up by like you know five hundred percent. I mean like an insane amount. So and everyone at the time was starting companies, and suddenly you were like, well, gee, you know, if if he can do it or if, if she can do it, well, gee, I could do it too. Do you think you would have had the same path if you had stayed in Zurich or stayed in Europe? In other words, was it the fact that you were overseas and you had, you know, you were sort of an immigrant isn't probably the right expression but you were you weren't at home there wasn't a safety net most definitely because already by year two or year three i guess of my studies i already was interested actually in how companies were started i already had started in parallel 
ETHA had actually two wonderful programs. One of them was a seminar series about venture capital, where they brought the best venture capitalists uh, and the best entrepreneurs to lecture. Um, and it was even in good ETH fashion, you had the full lecture set was, a, was in a binder. And anyone who signed up for that lecture series <laughs> had the binder. And I still have it, actually, by the way. In parallel, there also was the second thing, the second initiative was a um, there were business plan guidance and competition that had started. I think McKinsey, uh, right. the consulting company, was involved yes, at the did. time. Yes, they did. I remember that. So all of this, was I was already kind of embedded there. So I think anyway, it, it would have happened, I think, as well. Yep. <laughs> Fantastic. Your current company, Portal, is your third company, if I've understood correctly. That's correct, yes. Can you tell us a little bit about your path and how did you make the switch from mechanical engineering to a company that makes what looks to me like the thing that Star Trek, the Dr. Bones, used when he would... Anyway, you'll explain it much better. Sure, but sure. Tell us about your first company. I think it's, it was called Arateus. Arateus? That's right, Arateus. Yeah, so Arateus, um, Arateus was a company where our goal was to measure blood glucose in uh, in diabetic patients and, and using uh, some new form of laser spectroscopy. So perhaps you are the audience maybe uh, familiar with uh, so-called Raman spectroscopy. Yeah? I have no idea what that is. You have no idea. Okay, okay. All right. So imagine you, there's one form of spectroscopy, which means like the, uh, you know, the, the study of light and how you can basically tease out uh, some molecular entity, basically by just looking at the, the reflection of light from that molecular entity. Imagine if there was the most precise measurement and we made it basically a thousand times better. Uh, and so that's kind of was the premise of the company. Uh, it was some amazing physics out of Texas A&M that we licensed out. Then the second company, uh, SynapDX, was also a medical diagnostics company. So this was a blood draw where we basically were attempting to measure autism from measuring the expression of genes in blood. So the, the term of art here is differential RNA expression analysis. In other words, imagine that uh, the RNA, which is the expression of genes, mm -hmm. gives you an indication of the state of the body. Okay. And what we did, this was way before this was called AI, but this is kind of some form of AI. Uh, actually, in fact, at the time, the largest autism diagnostic study ever done, so 800 uh, incoming mm. patients, full prospective study, 20 sites across the U.S. and Canada. And we basically from there could derive uh, controls from the cases. And then in one set, we could kind of say, okay, what well, are the controls and, and the cases? Let's then apply it to the next set and see if the algorithm is able to basically pass the two populations. So it was some also very cool technology. This came out of Children's Hospital in Boston. But interestingly, nature did not agree with our hypothesis. And actually, the, the, the test was actually way, way more complex and difficult uh, to tease out information from uh, and in the end, actually, that company actually didn't work out. And even though we had like the best science, the best team, I was actually the junior person actually on, on that team. Uh, we had the legend of diagnostics. Perhaps you know him, uh, Stan Lapidus. We had the best investors. We had, we had Bain, Northbridge, General Catalyst. We also wow. had Google Ventures. I mean, come on. But in the end, it's still, it's nature was not in agreement with us, I suppose. And, uh, and that was it. So what did you learn from one company that you had a successful sale and one company that didn't quite work out. What did you take away from that? It didn't discourage you enough never to start it again. That's true. 
And what's amazing is that the level of enthusiasm that you have in the beginning is always super strong. <laughs> and you just don't know. I think that's true for any venture. And I think it is good to be a little bit naive, you know, and look at the glass always, you know, uh, half full instead of, instead of half empty. Uh, and I think that's maybe if you look across entrepreneurs, that's probably the characteristics that you would see. Is that they are naive or that they always look at the glass as half full? No, I think they are, they are overwhelmingly enthusiastic right. and may not know. <laughs> what I mean with naivete is that they, they just don't know how hard it actually is going to be. It's always harder than you think. It always takes more money. Agreed. It, right? But, but it's good not to... It takes more money. It takes more yeah. time. <laughs> I was on a call last night with one of my good friends who's running a, um, uh, also a medical device company. And, and she was telling me, yeah, you know, if a company hasn't had three to five near-death experiences and this is, this is not a real company this is what it takes <laughs> <laughs> that's a great expression i'll have to remember that one a great test rather so tell us about portal and that cool star trek device that you um that i saw in the video sure sure around portal. so so with portal what we were asking ourselves was what's the one device that everyone has been in contact with and that truly could be updated and that's the needle and syringe uh, the needle and syringe actually ironically was invented concurrently by a French and a Scottish actually uh, inventors. They, they both worked separately actually uh, about 150 years ago. That design, which is you know a pointy object that's hollow and a container or vessel that has a plunger that you push, I mean that design pretty much hasn't changed for the past 150 years. I've never thought of it that way. Right. I mean, it's the same thing. I mean, now it's it's disposable, it's transparent, you know, it's uh, it's maybe a bit safer because you, you get either a needle shield or you get the needle to retract, but it's still the same thing. Huh. We were running actually lately uh, a survey for vaccination, actually, because the vaccination has been such a hot topic in the US and across the world in, in the COVID context. We run a sample of 400 participants in the US. Mm -hmm. We asked them, did you vaccinate for COVID? 70% say yes, 30% said no. From the 30% group, we asked, okay, well, if there was a needle-free option, would you have done it? And to our surprise, 45% said, yes, of course I would have done it. So I was actually very shocked by that because I thought we'd get the needle phobic people, you know, 5 to 10% of the population. But 45 is almost half of the population that's unvaccinated. So, so it's, it really highlights it's beyond, you know, political, let's say, or ignorance, if I may say so as well. And, and I think there's a true opportunity there that we have to, to really do good in, in society. And so that was the premise, basically, of, of starting the companies. And so we looked at multiple ways to do this. We looked at like, uh, like a little pod, for example, that you could put onto your, uh, onto your cell that would sort of, you know. Oh, like a patch? Exactly. That would gently insert mm -hmm. a, a cannula and, and so on. And then we zeroed in on so-called jet injection technology, where you compress the drug you form a very fine jet with the drug uh, you know, through a, a small nozzle. That jet can be much smaller than a needle because think of it as a virtual needle. And if it travels very, very fast, it can actually pierce the skin and gently deliver the, the drug. Oh, that's and wild. so we came across this MIT technology that enabled you to actually create the jet, but also control it at the same time. So using a computer system and a uh, and sort of a, a so-called electric actuator, we're able to actually modulate the injection depth and the injection volume. And so really take the Star Trek vision that basically we actually took as inspiration, the, the one that you described, 
And did you really? Oh yeah, hundred percent. Oh, that's yeah. cool. Oh, of course, of course. We, we all trekkies <laughs> at MIT. That's that's what we do. You know, yes. And, and actually, ironically, there are two medical devices in Star Trek. There's a tricorder that can diagnose any ailment, and the the hypospray that can inject any medicine. Actually. So this is the real life hypospray. This is the real life hypospray. Yes. In many ways. Yes. And uh, oh, yeah, when, when you come so next cool. time, you know, I'll, I'll show it to you. I mean, it is, we're getting so much, first of all, feedback, not only from patients, but actually, I mean, we get emails from patients every day, but the best feedback we get is actually from physicians. Really? Yeah. Physicians really hate needles. You wouldn't believe- Physicians hate needles. That's what you just said? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Because for them, I think it's it's really an issue of safety in the workplace. They probably all know colleagues who have gotten injured, you know, from a needle stick. Across the world, you've got every year, it's true statistics, you've got 2 million uh, healthcare professionals, so nurses and physicians, who actually get a needle stick injury. Wow. I mean, it's crazy. These are trained professionals, right? They know what they're doing. They know the the danger, the consequences of a needle stick, mm -hmm. but yet we still get 2 million healthcare professionals getting a needle stick injury every year. So needles are great because they are effective and they are low cost, but they're also dangerous as well. And let's know to dispose of them is a whole saga that I think as more and more drugs become injectables, then this is a big problem that we have and that we need to solve. And so that's what we aim to solve. And if you came to our office uh, today, you would see on the wall our mission is a needle-free world. And, and that's kind of how we direct the company and how we uh, we kind of get the whole company to, to rally behind that. Fantastic. So I'm going to ask you some questions just to, to close our conversation. When you were growing up in Paris with that little view of the Eiffel Tower in the kitchen, what did you want to be? What did you aspire to be when you grew up? I had two uh, visions. I think one, of course, I wanted to be an astronaut. And I had always I had imagined myself on top of a rocket <laughs> and sort of going to space. I'm a huge fan of Elon Musk actually for because of what he's done with SpaceX because it is, I mean, stuff of legend. Oh, it's huge. The second thing I wanted to uh, imagine myself was designing airplanes. Uh, I've always been fascinated with flying. And, really? Uh, and interesting that that actually most never happened, but it's still there in terms of uh, of, of guiding me as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you sounds like you've still got a third phase to your career, right? If you had an academic career, an entrepreneurial career, you know, there is a third part to That's that. That's true. That's true. Second question. What is your favorite place in Zurich? Where do you like to go? Oh, I'll tell you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I never said that to anyone, but I'll, I'll tell it to you, Susan. <laughs> uh, so I lived near the ETH uh, campus. And I always like mm -hmm. to go down uh, that one passageway that goes that's in between ETH and uh, University of Zurich that goes down to the Limat, the, the Limat, which is the, the river. The stairway. The stairway. Yeah. And then from there, you go down, uh, you go through the Niederdorf, uh, across, I think, the Limat Brücke. Then you take a left, and then on the other side of the bank of the river towards the lake, there's a little passageway. Uh, with, little with little arches and so on that leads you all the way down to basically the lake. Yeah? And then you can actually cross the, the river the other way and actually go around a form of esplanade and then go back. And it's still to this day, I, I love to do that, that walk, yeah. Fantastic. Patrick, thank you so much for your time. And this My has pleasure. been a great conversation. Really appreciated it. Likewise, Susan. Fabulous. Great questions. Love the conversation too. I'm Susan Kish, host of the We Are ETH series. 
Please subscribe to this podcast and join us wherever you listen. And give us a good rating on Spotify or Apple if you enjoyed today's conversation. I'd like to thank our producers at ETH Circle and Ellie Media. And most of all, to thank you, our listeners, for joining us. 